Good morning, church. There's a young man that I taught when I was doing student ministry back right when Noah's sons got off the ark. And this young man was a great person, and he was, it was just wonderful to have him around ministry. He, would, um, he was a kind person. He was very likable. He was uh, studious with his Bible. He always had uh, great biblical input. He studied his lesson or studied the assignment that was due. He participated in our Bible studies with very, uh, a lot of interest and zeal. And after we moved away from that area, I heard sometime later that he was removed as an adult young man from his Sunday school teaching position. And I wondered why, so I, I called him. And he explained to me that he and the pastor had had a misunderstanding and that the pastor had wrongly removed him from his teaching role. And I asked the nature of the misunderstanding. He told me that he himself no longer believed that Jesus is God. I asked, why not? The young man answered, because nowhere in the Bible does Jesus just say directly, I am God. I grieved over his answer because he is tragically and eternally wrong. While it is true that Jesus doesn't go around saying, I am God, all the time. He does say it in much more convincing terms, rather than just making a simple claim. In John chapter 10, as we're ramping up toward Easter, what we find in John chapter 10 is, this is the last time that Jesus will be in Judea until his triumphant entry. And what we find about Judea and Jerusalem is that they are more rejecting of Christ now than they ever have been. The problem with the Jews in this account in John chapter 10 is similar to what I just explained about my friend. They claimed that Jesus wasn't being plain and he wasn't being clear. The situation in John chapter 10 shows us that he was very plain. They just couldn't handle it. So we're looking at Jesus is the Son of God in John chapter 10 verses 22 to 42. I was uh, telling Dan, uh, Pastor Dan, a few weeks back, he knows that I'm notable for only taking a few verses. And so a couple of times in John, it's an expansive number of verses and I said, Dan, don't worry, the verses are short in the Gospels. It's not like the Apostle Paul where every verse is like four lines, you know. So don't panic. Uh, we will be out of here before Easter actually happens. And so you, you'll be okay. John chapter 10, 22 to 42. I want you to see, first of all, the interrogation of the Son of God. In verses 22 and following, at that time, the Feast of Dedication. Now, the word dedication is uh, the Hebrew for dedication is Hanukkah. And so we don't call Hanukkah the Feast of Dedication. We call it the Feast of Lights because of the festivities that go on. It's like Jewish Christmas almost. And um, there is a lot of, you know, light and so on. And there are, you know, marathons that they run and bear a torch to the next city and all those kinds of things. 
But originally it's known as a feast of dedication. Now you, you know what this is about. We just finished the book of Daniel. And when Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple by erecting a statue of Zeus in God's temple and by sacrificing swine, which is anathema to Jews, uh, on the altar there, it polluted the temple and so it was desolate of Jewish people. And then you know how the Maccabees brothers uh, came in and they defeated Antiochus's uh, guard and they cleansed the temple and rededicated it. And so that's what the celebration is. You don't see the celebration in the Old Testament uh, because it happened between the writing of the Old Testament and the New Testament. So it is something that the Jews do pick up and they begin to celebrate. And so that's why Jesus is there. He's there at the time of the dedication of the temple and to cleanse it from its desecration. And the thing that the Jews didn't realize is that they had desecrated the temple just as much as Antiochus Epiphanes had done. They had desecrated it with their works righteousness, their self-justification, and also their religious ceremonies that now had become a stench in the nostrils of God. So the Son of God is there to present himself as, I will cleanse this thing. And by the temple, he's not worried about stones and, and columns and so on and so forth. The temple represents the people of God. That's what it represents. And so the place itself is not the issue. It's what it represents. And so Jesus is there to cleanse the, the ones that are claiming to be the people of God if they will just come to him. But we find that they're foe, they're fake people of God. They're not truly his. They bear his name historically but they do not claim his son eternally so the problem is these Jews are, are similar they reject this and so here we have the they interrogate him in these verses and so he's going to be answering the cynics here so look at his answer first of all as, as in this interrogation as far as the cynics and what they say to him at that time the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem it was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon so the Jews gathered around him and, and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. So answering the cynics here. Tell us plainly, they said. Well, here's the thing about it. Just back in chapter 9... He had healed the man who was born blind, blind from birth. And they knew it. And they had already made an announcement that if anyone claimed that Jesus is the Christ, they will be cast out of the temple and out of synagogue worship. They would not be allowed to be a part of the people of God if they made this claim. They knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. Has anyone since the beginning of the world ever heal, healed a man born blind? And the answer was no, but Christ has done it. What do you have to say for yourself, they said to the man born blind. And you know what the man born blind said? Here's what he was saying to them in so many words. What do you all have to say for yourselves? I don't know who this man is. All I know is this. I once was blind. Now I see. That's what I know. And they told him this. Here, here is their, uh, understand their theology about the human condition, the Pharisees. They tell the man born blind, you 
and implicate and insinuating and not us. But you were born utterly in sin. Do you see what they understand about the depravity of man? Only some people are hopelessly depraved. But us religious people, we're cut from a better cloth. And the issue here is, as Jesus said, they were the ones, the Pharisees were the one actually blind. It wasn't the man born blind. It was the Pharisees. They're the ones that were blind. And so here they are interrogating Jesus. They knew plainly what the claim is here. Remember what he said to him earlier. Before Abraham was, I am. He had taken the tetragrammaton, the Yahweh, the word Yahweh, and applied it to himself. He applied pre-existence to himself. That's why they took up stones to, to stone him. They had heard plainly. But now they want to interrogate him again. And the Bible here says when they, they, they say they gathered around him. What this means is they cornered him. They surrounded him. This is not a friendly crowd seeking answers here. This is a group of people wanting to catch him in order that they might execute him. So these are not people wanting to know. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone like that? And they, they really don't want to know. They really don't. And, and, you know, when I sense that in someone and they're just wanting to argue, I'm like, hey, you know what? Have a good day. Just, you know, go on and have a good day. And, um, you know, when you wake up in hell tomorrow, you remember what we said, okay? You know, I, but I just don't get into it with people anymore. I just don't. I'm like, you know what? Hey, uh, if that's where you want to go with it, just, just help yourself. But if you really want to know, if you come with a seeking heart, then we'll go to Jesus and we'll find out. If you want to. And these people don't want to. So they say, if you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Here's what Jesus was doing. Jesus, throughout the Gospels, he's very careful to avoid using the word Messiah of himself around the Jews. He's very careful about that. And you want to think to yourself, why not? Why, not? why shouldn't he just blurt it out? You know where he blurted it out? The woman at the well. She wasn't Jew. See, so he said it plainly. Why didn't he say it plainly to the Jews? It's because they had in their minds this political, economic, military deliverer. They wanted someone to make Israel great again. That's what they had in mind. And if we can just get Jesus and the Republicans on the Pharisaical Council, we will have this thing licked. It will be the kingdom of God all over again. We... That's what they're looking for. And sadly, I feel that so many American Christians are looking for the same thing. Just give us a messianic-like president that just makes everything nice. You know what needs to be going on in your heart and mind right now? With the way things are in this world. Well, here's what needs to be running through your mind. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And that in the end, the Father will give all of the kingdoms into the hand of the Son. And the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and His Christ. And He shall reign forever. He shall reign. And Jesus is careful. Like, I'm not going to let you put me in that trap because you're a bunch of non-believers anyway. You're a bunch of cynics. 
and I'm not going to give you the satisfaction. He was trying to show them that the kind of Messiah that they needed was the Messiah that he is, the one who saves souls from hell. But no, they wanted a political warlord to free them from the earthly discomfort caused by the Romans. What is the reason for their confusion? Why don't they understand this? Verse 26 tells us, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. I'm sorry, but this is predestinarian. No man has in him the natural possession of the knowledge of Christ. No person has in himself or herself the innate ability to convert themselves and turn to Jesus and cause themselves to believe on Christ. No one has that ability. These people are not his sheep. They never will be his sheep. They are stuck in their free will. They're exercising their free will. And when the free will of man is exercised, guess what he does? He eats of the tree. He rejects Christ. He exalts himself, Tower of Babel. That's what man does when he exercises his free will. And God has given them free will and they're just exercising it left and right and rejecting Jesus all the way to hell because they're exercising their free will. God doesn't take away anybody's free will. Nobody comes to Jesus against their own will. But thank God, in the economy of our sovereign God, He has chosen to rescue some of a sinful free will and acting people from the jaws of death and hell. These people understood who Jesus is intellectually. They were rejecting him morally. Why? Because their hearts are depraved and wicked and hardened against God. If you're going to trust on Christ, self has to go flying off of the throne. And they're not about to do that. They've got an airtight system here. We're good. Y'all are bad. If you want anything, you come to us and pay for it. They've got a great system going on here. Wicked as it can be. Faith is given to those people whom Christ chooses as his sheep. And those who are his sheep believed him. The man born blind believed him. The assurance for the sheep is this. Look in verses 27 to 30. As Jesus is being interrogated by those who are the goats. He gives a word of comfort to the sheep. Look what he says, my sheep hear my voice. Do you remember when you come to Christ? Do you remember that day when you came to Christ? Do you remember that? You heard his voice. Everybody else was sitting there looking up at the ceiling, watching their watch or doing whatever. But he spoke to his sheep and you came out of there. And I don't know where you were at that time. You may have been in the Billy Graham crusade. You may have been in a church building. You may have been at Bob Evans. I don't know where you are. But God spoke and you came out. They hear his voice. My sheep hear my voice. And here's the thing about it. And I know them. It's a wonderful thing that Jesus knows you. You know people can claim to know Jesus. And the question is does he know you? And look at the result and they follow me. 
Do you want to know how you know if you're a sheep? You follow Jesus. You just follow. You say, Pastor, I've messed up so many times. Haven't we all? Listen, I've been in the briar so many times, the briar patch knows me by name. So this is not, this is not about perfection. I tell you this, it's not about following Jesus with perfection. But it is the direction of your life. You get free, you just get back on the path, follow him some more. There's just something in sheep that makes them want to follow their shepherd. There's something in you. Now, Jesus said, I give them eternal life. This is a gift. Eternal life is a gift. It's a gracious gift of God. It's not anything that you've earned. It's, it's a gift. It's just freely given to you. I give them eternal life. And get this. They will never perish. Never, ever perish. It's emphatic here. The Greek is emphatic. They will never, ever, 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 ever perish. Ever. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Now listen to me. If you're of the persuasion that people by their naked free will trust on Jesus because you've convinced them, then your theology necessarily means that they can unbelieve on him. They can lose their salvation. Friends, you can't hold Arminianism and eternal security both. It is logically impossible. If you'll just be truthful with yourself, if you'll be truthful with yourself, if you think that humans somehow come to this place that they're like, you know what, I think it's a good idea to follow Jesus. They can also think it's a bad idea to follow Jesus somewhere down the line. Eternal security goes hand in hand with the irresistible grace of God and the unconditional election of God of His sheep. That's why they go together. We are in a relationship forever with Jesus. Not because we chose Him, but because He chose us. You have not chosen me, Jesus said, but I've chosen you. That's how you know. It's all on Him. It's all on Him. He says, I give them eternal life. They'll never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand, including you. My Father... Who has given them to me. See God gives these to Jesus. The reason that you are in Christ. Is not because. You're this great person. You decide to trust Jesus one day. It's because the father. Chose you. And gave you to his son. You see in order for you to perish. God would have to take back his gift to his son. He's greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And then verse 30, he says these words. I and the Father are one. Now, what does that mean? Okay, so let me give it to you in a complicated way. And then we'll make it simple. The word one there. See one? You got it in your Bible there? See one? Okay. It's, it's a noun. But the Father... And the Son, those are, the, I and the Father, those are both, both nouns as well, pronoun. And, and both of those are masculine by, by gender. And see, if, if we take away gender, you start having trouble learning language as well. So please, 
There's no, in, in language, there's no transgender. Okay? It's one or the other. But there is something called neuter, where it's neutral. It's not male or female, it's neutral here. And so what we have is I, the pronoun I, and Father, they're both masculine. And then you have a verb, are. And what you should see on the other side of this, the object of this, you should see on the other side a noun that's also masculine. But it's not. It's neuter, it's neutral. And here's what this means. It does not mean I and the Father are the same person. Because if it was going to say we're the same person, then it would have been a masculine. One would have been in the masculine gender. It's not. So I and the Father are one, and it's neuter and neutral, and it means we're one thing. We're the same thing. So in the Trinitarian theology, here's what this means. I and the Father, Jesus and the Father, they're distinct in their persons. They're not the same person. The Son and the Father do not play tag team. Uh, it, it's your turn. There's no mode. It, it, just Please drop all human analogies trying to describe the Trinity because every time you use one, it's heresy. Don't do the ice water or steam thing. Please don't. Don't do the egg thing. Please don't. It's all wrong. You're teaching falsehood about the Trinity. What you have in the Trinity is there are three distinct persons. They, they each have their own impetus. They, they each are three personalities that are distinct. They're different. When you're talking to the Son, you're not talking to the Father. When you're talking to the Father, you're not talking to the Son. When you're praying to the Holy Spirit, you're not talking to the Son. But they do work together so they're all equally knowing of what you're talking about. But they're one thing. What does that mean? They're one in essence. This thing that they are, this essence of their very existence, Jesus, the Son, shares it with the Father. Now, how do I know here that Jesus is claiming to share in the existence which is Godhood? Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. When people say Jesus nowhere says that he's God, well, the Jews are not going to pick up rocks to stone someone because they claim to love God a lot or to be like God a lot. That's not what's going on here at all. So we see that he's being interrogated by these cynics. In the midst of it, he gives his sheep a word of comfort, but he answers them very plainly, very plainly. In words that they ought to be able to understand. What he's saying is. Messiah. Yeah. But you guys are not going nearly far enough. What about the eternal son of the Godhead. That's here on earth now. How about that. And they don't like it. Now look next at the verification by the son of God of his person. Verse 31. And we see that he verifies his identity with the Father, or by the Father, in verses 31 to 36, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works. And the word good there means beautiful. I have shown you beautiful works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. See, now we have, they understood what he was saying when he said, I and the Father are one. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. 
That's why we're going to stone you. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. It is so funny to see Jesus toy with people. I, I love it when they come to him like, we're going we're gonna to outsmart you. I just want to start laughing. Oh, really? Okay, watch this. The Jews understand clearly he's saying, I am God. I want to say to the young man that was removed from his Sunday school class, and if he still holds that belief about Jesus not being God, he is an unbeliever. He's lost. But I want to say to him, Jesus has clearly said, I'm more than a Messiah. I and the Father are one. Is that clear enough? If it's not clear, why are the Jews so upset? They accuse him of using the word God, Elohim, here uh, irreverently and inaccurately. And here's what Jesus does. Did you ever, y'all ever read Psalm 82? And they're like, well, okay. And he says, you know, in that, in that uh, Psalm, uh, the, the writer David, you know David, don't you guys? Yeah, you believe it's the word of God, don't you? Yeah, well, he uses Elohim for men there, for people. He uses the word Elohim, gods, plural, for people. And so if the Bible uses that word in that way of flawed humans, then how much more appropriate is that I say I am the Son of God since God consecrated me and sent me into the world. See, you have to be pre-existing to be sent into the world. He is claiming pre-existence here. He existed before now, or else how could he have been sent? Jesus is not trying to convince them. Jesus is trying to show them how foolish they are. Now he verifies himself by his activity from the Father. Verse 37, look what he says. I am not doing, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. His argument is this. Look at what I have done. I have given sight to the blind. I have made the cripple walk. Where do you think this ability comes from? Does a mere human have within himself the capacity to to do these things? Do you know what's going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back? Raising Lazarus from the dead. And it was 100% verifiable without question that it was true. The Jews never say to him, oh, that's a tricky trick you've got going on there. Quit doing tricks on us. That's not their response. They know it's true. That's what makes them mad. They don't have any way to refute it. And they get mad about the resurrection. Who in their right mind would be mad about someone being raised from the dead except maybe funeral home director? Now they'd bill you anyway. Who who in their right mind? Sin causes insanity. People lose their moral and logical direction because of sin. And when the heart heart gets that hardened, then they can't think straight. And so here they they, they get angry. So Jesus saying, I've done these works. Then if I haven't done them, don't believe me. But if I have done them, what's your problem? 
Then he verifies again his unity with the Father. If we go back to verse 38. He says, I've done these things that you, all of y'all, may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Why are they mad again? He just makes this statement of, of his union with the Father, his equality with the Father. When the Son came into this world, he subordinated himself to the Father as he walked on this earth as a human. So he subordinates himself to the Father while he's walking upon this earth. But you remember what he says in, in John 16? Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world began. His position as the Son of God is equality. His life lived upon this earth as the Son of Man is humility. And so he says to them there, Look, in this world the Son of God has taken on human flesh and subordinated myself to the Father here on earth. But the day is coming and you will see it when I will return to glory and every knee will bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's coming. So this is verification of the Son of God. Now, interestingly, just to me, so bear with me while I teach myself. In verse 38, he says that you may know and understand. It's interesting that, you know, in, in the English language, we, we have two different words here. But it's the same word in Greek twice. But they're two different um, it's, it's a different tense. And so what he, what he means to say to them is, I've done these things that you may come to the point that you know. You know, in everybody's life, if you're going to start following Jesus, there's a point in time where you have to come to the place that you know that he's a son of God. And then understand is an ongoing action. And what that means is your growth as a Christian. He's just laying out for them here the Christian life. I want you to come to the place where you know for certain. And then on that knowledge, keep on understanding that the Father's in me and I'm in the Father. There's a lot of good stuff in this Bible. There's good stuff in there. So Jesus just verifying himself like I'm, I'm making this claim. And I'm making it with my works. Look at my works. If they do not align with the character and name and integrity of God in heaven. Then for God's sake don't believe me. But if they do align. And normal humans don't do this kind of stuff. Then what does that make me? What am I then? That's what he's saying to them. His question. They're, they're, they bring a question to him. Tell us plainly. His question to them is, tell me plainly. You, you are asking me to say plainly, I'm the Messiah. Well, I've got a question for you. You tell me plainly who I am. See, because that is the question that divides humanity for all of eternity. You tell me who I am. And they have to come to some kind of conclusion here. They can't deny these works. What are they going to say? What are they going to do? And then Jesus, then at the end of this, he, we see he shows salvation is through the Son of God. And so he escapes from their hands in verse 39. And he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. 
And there he remained. And many came, came to him. And they said, John did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Jesus goes over to the hated area of Perea. Across the Jordan. Not in the Holy Land. Over there. Where John the Baptist had preached. In that area. And we see that. The people there have been alerted by the testimony of John. They say everything John said about this, this man was true. And this is the last mention of John the Baptist in the Gospel of John. This is the last mention of this man. He's, he was beheaded. We know that's happened. But even after his execution for preaching the Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, even after that, after his execution, after he's gone, his testimony about Jesus still carries on. Do you know this? And I have to remind myself of this. The greatest work that we've done for God will be seen not by us, but by the people that come behind us. You know, sometimes in life, if you're, if you're a pastor, and I've, I've been doing this a long time, if you're a pastor, you, you always have dreams like what you'd really like to see God do. And... You know, you, you have it, and, and rarely do you see that happen. Rarely do you, do you see it. Most of the time, what you dreamed of and what God does in your lifetime are so far apart that it's easy to be disappointed with God. You're like, God, I gave you everything. I, I sacrificed my whole life. And what results do I get? I told somebody the other day, I said, I have effectively grown this church from 340 down to 220. And, you know, by the way that humans count things, I've been an, ab there's an absolute failure at this thing. And take heart, ladies and gentlemen, I am the worst pastor you will ever have. So just take heart, okay? So better days are coming. But you know, truthfully, the, the reward for your labor is not seen in this life usually. It usually isn't. See, the reward for my labor is in the hands of Silas Roberts. Your kids, your grandkids, little Bowen. See, because the only way that my ministry is effective is if God somehow uses me to touch the lives of adults that somehow it becomes really real to them and they turn around and pass it off to the next generation. I won't be around to see that. But that's how you know. This was John. And I'm saying this to you to, to not lose heart with your own Christian walk. What you're doing for the Lord and how you serve Him now. And you may look at it and say, I don't know what good it's doing. I don't see hundreds of people come to Christ. I try to disciple people and they jump off the wagon after three weeks, you know. I, I don't know if I'm doing any good at all, at all. I just want to say to you, the effect of your service for the Lord will probably not come to fruition in your own lifetime. Serve him by faith. Just serve him by faith. Listen, y'all did Sunday school this morning with Rahab. 
She had no idea that her name would appear in Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy of Jesus. She had no idea in her lifetime. So you serve the Lord faithfully like John the Baptist did. And if it costs you your head, then it just does. It just does. These people heard the testimony of John. Then they're convinced by the truthfulness, the verity of Jesus. It says many believed on him there. Many. And the word there. You know what, you know what the Bible is doing here? It's saying there and not in Jerusalem. Many people are believing on him there, but not over there. He came into his own, and his own received him not. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become sons of God, even to those who believe on his name. Rejected by the Jews, believed on by the Pereans. Not in Judea, not to the cynical, not to the arrogant, not to the holy, but to the sinners. This section of scripture is really making one point. You say, well, preacher, it took you a long time to get to it. Well, it just does. Jesus is the Son of God. That's the point that Jesus is making here. He answers the interrogation with his works and his life. He verifies that he really is from God by his activity, by his unity with the Father. And then he shows that salvation really is through the Son of God. If Jesus is not the Son of God, then how can He give eternal life? If Jesus is not the Son of God, how can He do the works that He did? If Jesus is not the Son of God, what right does He have to receive worship like He did in John chapter 9 and verse 38 from the man who was born blind? If Jesus is not the Son of God, then how in the world could He die for your sins? If Jesus is not the Son of God, how could He save anyone? If Jesus is not the Son of God, how could He receive people from the Father as a gift? If He's not the Son of God, He's the biggest fraud in human history. I think it was Josh McDowell, maybe it was C.S. Lewis, one of them said, He's either Lord, liar, or lunatic. You, you've got to figure this out. If His works are those that are works of the Father that mere humans don't do, then that says that he's something other than or something way beyond some kind of political caretaker to make life better for everyone. No, he's the savior of souls. John said about this book, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? God in human flesh, come into this world, living a sinful life as a human, dying on the cross in place of humans, being resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father to intercede for sinners. Do you believe that about him? That's the question he asks of us. We can ask him questions all day long. How does the Trinity work, Jesus? I don't understand this. I don't, Jesus, why did you say this? You can ask him questions all day long and you're welcome. But the one question that remains in your life, who is Jesus?
Is he the son of God? If he is, then cast it all on him. Bet the farm on him. Take your whole life and surrender and just lay it in his hands. And receive life from him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for giving us a glimpse of the life of the Son of God. Thank you, Father, for showing us yourself in your Son. Thank you, Father, for showing us that it is through him that we have eternal life. Thank you, Lord, that you are still calling sheep into your fold. I pray today, Father, for those who need to hear your voice, to hear the call of the Son of God upon their heart. Lord Jesus, would you call them today? I pray, Father, that the call would be so clear and so compelling that they would flee to the cross for the grace of Jesus. Father, I pray for your people. Lord, help them not to be weary and well-doing, knowing that the fruit of their labors, the greatest fruit that they will bear, will probably be long after they're gone. But God, help them to sow the seed. Help them to cultivate the field, knowing that the harvest will come in due time. Now, Lord, unto you be glory and honor and praise during these moments of invitation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.